Welcome to episode 63 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. We just had the main event of UFC Apex 3 between Curtis Blades and Alexander Volkov. Curtis Blades was able to get the win there by decision. Looked really strong in the first few rounds. Started to tire out towards the later end of the fight, but still had enough in the bank to hang on to a victory there. So I'll recap that fight. I'll recap the entire card of UFC Apex 3. Uh, then from there, I'll get into a longer conversation about the first fight on that card, which was between Max Roshkoff and Austin Hubbard, and specifically what happened in Max Roshkoff's corner after the second round. Uh, I'll talk about the upcoming fights that'll be coming up next week between Dan Hooker and Dustin Poirier, so I'll preview that card. Talk about a situation that happened in the middle of the week where Matt Favola was supposed to be on this week's card, and he ended up getting pulled because his cornerman, not him, but his cornerman, had tested positive for COVID-19. Uh got some new fights to announce there were a bunch that were announced over the course of this week with fight island being announced but there was also some fights that are going to be happening in august after fight island is over or at least after this initial brush at fight island is over so i'll talk about those and then a couple topics related to some other combat sports so for wrestling they have a few cards that are coming up now uh they've got a card that's going to be in chicago on june 28th so i'll talk about the three main matches on that and then also a card that was just announced by flow wrestling for july so wrestling was pretty badly affected by COVID. Of the, uh, among all the combat sports, you could argue that it was affected the worst, I guess, because the Khabib and Tony Ferguson fight was taken away by COVID-19. You could, you could argue that MMA might have been hit a little bit worse, but for wrestling, they had just finished up their conference tournaments and were headed into the NCAA tournament, and that all got completely shut down. So there were a lot of matches in that tournament that a lot of people wanted to see, but there were also a lot of international matches with the Olympic trials that were about to come up as well that people wanted to see. So some of these cards are going to be putting some interesting matches on. And then for Jiu-Jitsu, there was the Third Coast Grappling uh, Kumite number 2 that happened uh, that had a lot of top guys in the world in it, so I'll recap that as well. Back to the top, we have Curtis Blades versus Alexander Volkov. And just right off from the start, Blades was able to get Volkov down. Volkov did a pretty good job in, in terms of not taking a lot of damage on the ground. Uh, but that being said, it's not as though he initially was very effective at getting back up to his feet. Uh, for much of the first round, he was kind of like in this turtle position where he had a grip on Blaze's hand. And it seemed like a lot of times when Volkov was down, he was content to just kind of hang on and wait for Herb Dean to step in and stand him up rather than actively like pushing off of the hips and working his way back up. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. The more active you are, uh, sometimes that means there's more space for the guy on top to land his shots, and Curtis Blaze is very dangerous from top. There were some moments in the fight where he was landing some really hard elbows, so I can see why Volkov took that approach. But with that being said, it's tough to win the early rounds if that's what you're doing. And you kind of have to rely on your opponent getting tired as the fight goes on and then being able to finish him in the later rounds. Uh, he was able to get Blades tired, but he wasn't able to finish him in the later rounds. Uh, so for Blades, he, he just continued on with the same strategy over the course of the fight where he was going to try to shoot in on Volkov and take him down. I did like what he did at the start of the second round, and I talked about this in the preview, where when I was talking about this fight, I was saying, look, from a grappling standpoint or definitely from a wrestling standpoint, Curtis Blades has the edge there. On the feet, Volkov should have the edge, but the question is going to be, if Blades is able to offer enough of a threat with his wrestling that it really dumbs down what Volkov does on the feet and really opens up opportunities for Blades. And early in that second round, Blades was faking shots and then throwing overhand rights. It was actually landing some really hard shots on Volkov, but Volkov was able to take them, uh, which was pretty impressive by him. Uh, but with that being said, just over the course of the fight, Blades was able to continually take Volkov down. It was very effective at shooting in the middle of the octagon, either getting a takedown before they hit the wall or once they got up to the wall, being able to drag him down at that point. So early on, Blaze did more than enough to, to win the rounds. Uh, but like I said, Volkov was very conservative on the ground. Didn't really give himself a whole lot of opportunities to get up on his own. 
Um, didn't give himself a whole lot of opportunities to submit Blades, but with that being said, he also didn't give Blades the opportunities to create space and land a lot of heavy shots from top as well. So put himself down in those early rounds. As the fight wore on, Volkov was able to find some more strikes. Um, you look at the strike counts, especially for the last two rounds, Volkov had the edge there. Not part of that's because he was uh, hanging on to Blades, keeping his posture low, and landing some short elbows from bottom. Uh, so those count in, in, in terms of numerically, but it, it's sort of hard to tell how much credit you give a guy for taking his opponent down and getting on top and how much credit you give the guy on bottom for landing a few more shots from bottom, even if they aren't terribly hard and don't have gravity on their side. But either way, uh, as the fight wore on, you could tell that Blades was getting tired. Volkov did offer some threats with the kicks and with the knees, but it was one of those things where he had to be careful about his kicks. There was a time, I think it was the fourth round, where through a teep, seemed like it was successful, through another teep right after, and then Blades caught it and took him right down. So it sort of took the kicks out of play for Volkov, or at least took him out of play compared to how much he probably wanted to use him. And for him, he, he'd have brief moments, but it, it would seem like every time he'd start to gain some momentum, Blades would get his hands on him, and whether he was able to take him down or whether he was able to hold him up against the fence for a little while, it was enough to mess with Volkov's momentum. So in the end, Curtis Blades gets the decision win here, even though he was pretty tired at the end of the fifth round. So Sort of a tough look for Blades in that if you're pushing to be in a five-round fight or pushing to be in a championship fight, getting gassed out at the end of the third round or and, and just having to hang on the skin of your teeth in the fourth and fifth rounds maybe isn't the best look for him. Now, with that being said, no one ever was under the assumption that he was going to be getting a title fight. He could have won this fight with a 10-second knockout. He would still not be ahead of Francis Ngannou. Um, for one, Francis Ngannou pretty much just came off of a 10-second knockout himself, a frozen strike, but also Ngannou is 2-0 against Curtis Blades and in their most recent fight, was able to finish him. So this was one of those fights where, for Blades, it was pretty much just keep making money and stay active and keep yourself sort of in that second tier where you have, like, the tier one is, like, the Cormier, Miocic, and Ngannou, and then the tier two would be him pretty much by himself. Uh, so that was pretty much all he was fighting for, and he was able to accomplish that. But for him, if the thought is to wait until a title fight comes, he's going to be waiting for a long time. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think he needs to keep staying active and keep making money. Um... Dana White was pretty harsh towards him. He was saying, look, you can't talk all this shit and then have a fight come up like that. I, I don't know why Dana was so upset with Curtis Blades. Like I mentioned, was it tough to watch Curtis Blades look exhausted at the end of the fight? Yes. There was a mention early on where they said that Blades was 250 for his last fight and 261 for this fight, so maybe he put on a little bit of extra weight during the quarantine, uh, so he wasn't in as good of shape as he could have been. But with that being said, him being unable to really take control of the fight in the early rounds. A large part of that was because Volkov was doing everything he could when he was on bottom not to give Blades an opportunity to to really get his offense going. And that was sort of at the detriment to Volkov as well because he wasn't giving himself an opportunity to do anything offensive either, and that's why he was losing those rounds. So at least in the early part of the fight, you can kind of understand why Curtis Blades wasn't able to do as much damage as maybe he had hoped and maybe even get a finish like he has in some previous fights. Uh, and then later rounds... You're fighting in Vegas, which is up in the mountains relative to a lot of other places you could be at. I know that Curtis Blades also trains at elevation, so he probably would be used to that a little bit more than others. But even still, doing five-round heavyweight fights in elevated places has never really been a good idea. It's not as bad as that Mexico City card that they had a while back where they had a bunch of heavyweight fights on there. And that that card was just an absolute mess. Uh, th this wasn't that bad, but to an extent, if you have a 260-pound guy who likes to wrestle and who's shooting 25 times over the course of a fight... He's going to get tired as the fight goes on. So I, I really didn't have too many issues with what Curtis Blades did out there from a performance standpoint. Um, Dana White was a little harsh on him, but this is a fight game. People have very short memories. 
Uh, Curtis Blaze is going to have to fight again regardless before he gets his title fight, and if he puts on a performance like we've seen from him in the past where he's able to take a guy down, land some brutal elbows, and get a finish from top, uh, no one's really going to be thinking about this Volkov fight, and he'll be where he wants to be anyway. So though it doesn't seem like he's in the best graces of Dana White right now, I don't think it's really that big of a deal. I think he's still going to get a pretty good opportunity after this. Whether it's Derek Lewis or someone else who's ranked towards the top, and obviously Lewis has another fight with Alina coming up, but either way, I don't think it's going to be that much of a setback, if you even consider it a setback at all for, for Curtis Blades. This was a fight for him to just kind of hang on to where he's at. I feel like he did that. He accomplished that. Um, so I don't know that he has too much to be upset about other than just being in a really exhausting fight. Next fight on the card, or the coming event on the card, was also the fight of the night. That was between Shane Burgos and Josh Emmett. Uh, this was an absolute barn burner. In a way, a little bit unfortunate that it didn't go five rounds. I did mention last week. I think I might have mentioned it the week before uh, when we had Jessica I versus Cynthia Calvillo that I'd wish that they would have taken this Burgos versus Emmett fight and moved it up a week and made that the main event that week. Uh, definitely would have been nice had we gotten two more rounds out of this. Obviously, the, those two should not have been ahead of Curtis Blades and Alexander Volkov. Um, Blades and Volkov are ranked higher in the division. They're also in the heavyweight division. So it made sense that they got the main event spot. But either way, this was still an excellent fight. Uh, you saw Burgos, who had a little bit more diverse of an attack than Emmett, um, but Emmett, who definitely had more power. And over the course of this fight, Burgos looked good in the first round. Uh, there was that moment where it looked like Emmett had possibly blown out his knee. It's not entirely clear what happened there. Uh, but Burgos did a really good job of pressuring him. But Emmett heavily relied on that overhand right. But what I thought was interesting is that as heavily as he relied on that overhand right and has as much damage as he was doing with it in the early couple rounds, where he was really finding success in the third round and in dropping Burgos was when he was using the left hand and kind of switching and sort of catching Burgos off guard. So it could be one of those things where, you, yes, Emmett was landing huge with that overhand right, but Burgos kind of saw it coming and had a little bit more of a chance to roll with it, whereas he was kind of caught off guard a little bit more with the left hands. Uh, first one that dropped him in the third round was where Emmett, who traditionally fights out of the orthodox stance, switched to southpaw and sort of had like this lunging overhand left uh, that landed pretty heavy on Burgos and dropped him. Uh, but he was able to drop him, I think, with a left hook as well in the second round. So I had him dropped a couple times. Burgos did a good job of recovering. I uh, was able to hang on there. looked like it could have been a draw where the first round was fairly close. There, there was that noticeable moment with Bur or with Emmett's knee getting hurt. So you thought maybe that Burgos might have taken that round just slightly. Second round looked like it was a Burgos round. Third round was definitely Emmett's round. With the two knockdowns, you could have figured it could have been a 10-8. So this could have been a draw. Ends up going to Emmett, though. All three judges' scorecards, 29-28, 29-28, and then 29-27 uh, in favor of Josh Emmett. But great fight either way. Both guys are ranked to featherweight. Both guys will remain ranked at featherweight. Emmett was complaining a little bit about how he felt like he should have gotten a bigger push. Um, for the UFC, in terms of who they're going to invest resources behind, the idea is that if the UFC is going to spend $100,000 um, propping up a fighter, they expect there to be a really big return on the $100,000. And if the fighter comes across as, rel as relatively boring, then no matter what they do with that money, whether it's on ads, um, whether they're spending that money on production, trying to create assets that they can share on YouTube or whatever else they're going to do, they feel like people aren't going to tune in. It's not really going to be worth their time or money. And so for Burgos, he, or not for Burgos, for Emmett, he, he doesn't really go out of his way to promote himself all that often. So it, it's one of those things where if he's not really promoting himself all that often, if he's really not resonating with fans that much right now, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for the UFC to put a bunch of resources behind him. So I'm not entirely sure what his gripe is with the UFC, not not pushing him as much as he wants. If, if you want the UFC to push you, you got to be able to push yourself too. So it, it's one of those things where maybe he's going to realize that if he wants to have a bigger name in the division, he's going to have to do some work on his own and let the UFC kind of add on to what he's doing rather than asking the UFC to start all the momentum themselves. 
And the fight before that, we had Raquel Pennington versus Marion Renault. Uh, this ended up being a unanimous decision win for Pennington. Two rounds to one on two of the judges' scorecards and three rounds to zero on another one. Uh, this was a relatively boring fight. I was kind of tuning it out on that one. Um, Pennington was very effective from the clinch at, at, at the times that I was paying closer attention, though, and was landing a lot of really good knees, uh, landing some decent elbows as well. Had Renault hurt pretty bad at the end of the third round. So for Marion Renault, uh, she drops to 9-6, and six, is now 43 years old. Uh, has a decent jiu-jitsu background, but her striking could definitely use a lot of work. Her her takedowns could use work, and at, at this point in her career, it's it seems pretty clear she's never really going to be a title contender. So for her, she's still top 10 in the division. I don't know where she's going to drop to once the new rankings come out, but it, it kind of seems like she's going to a point where her career is definitely on the on the back end, and if this wasn't her last fight, you feel like the last fight's going to be coming sometime soon. Fight before that, we had Bilal Muhammad versus Lyman Good. Uh, this was... Bit of a tough one to score. Uh, so what was kind of surprising about this is that Muhammad was doing a lot of circling to the outside, and Good wasn't doing a great job of of cornering him and making him pay. Um, so if you're fighting someone who's not whose footwork isn't very good, you can just kind of keep circling around the outside the entire time, and there's not going to be anything they can do about it. Um, but if they head you off and they cut cut you off at an angle, uh, especially if they're throwing strikes as they cut you off. So if you're going to my right, for example, if I cut you off to my right and then throw a jab or throw a, like a lead right hook if I'm southpaw, something to kind of corral you back in. Uh, that's how I can kind of trap you into range and then start teeing off in you up against the fence at that point. Um, but if I never throw the punch, then you can just keep circling even if I'm starting to cut you off. Uh, if I'm not cutting you off, then you, just, you can obviously keep going. And that seemed like an issue with Lyman Good where it seemed like he was a little bit uncomfortable throwing that first strike. Uh, Muhammad was doing a pretty good job of landing himself. Uh, was landing some pretty hard shots. Uh, and and then also there was the threat of the takedown, so I think Good was a little bit concerned early on about when to go and when not to go. Uh, and, and that helped a lot in the early rounds. In the later rounds, Lyman Good was able to land some heavy shots, especially in the third round, had Muhammad hurt pretty bad. Uh, Muhammad was able to recover, ended up taking him down, and almost um, had a rear naked choke at the end of the fight. Uh, so good recovery by Bilal, but really tight fight between the two of them. All three judges had it two rounds to one in favor of Muhammad, and so Muhammad gets the win here. And then the first fight on the card, we had Jim Miller versus Roosevelt Roberts. Miller, you kind of figured, was going to want to make this a grappling match. Though he has a more diverse striking attack than Roberts does, Roberts is still very quick with his right hand, very good at throwing a fast straight right, uh, has a good amount of power in it as well. So for Miller, you figured he, he's the better grappler here. If he can get this fight to the ground, that's going to be where he's going to, that's going to be where he wants it to be. And rather than having to shoot a takedown and get through Roberts' guillotine to do it, uh, was able to land a leg kick right away that dropped him, chased him down to the ground, got to his half guard, um, put forth a lot of pressure. Roberts tried to buck him off. Didn't really have that technical of a sweep attempt. It was more of just kind of like a muscle attempt where he was bridging off the ground and trying to explode out. Um, Jim Miller was able to keep his balance off of that, keep his base. Uh, was starting to fall off, grabbed Roberts' arm, was able to snatch up the arm. Uh, Roberts made a couple of technical mistakes in defending it, and I actually did a recap. Or not a recap, I did a technical breakdown where I was showing the video of the actual arm bar and breaking down step-by-step step what happened, so you can watch that if you're interested. Uh, but either way, Miller's able to get the win there. Um, finishes Roosevelt Roberts with an arm bar. I believe he made over 200 grand for this fight, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. I don't know that <laughs> Jim Miller's bringing in that many eyes to, to the UFC. I don't know a lot of people were like, oh my god, Jim Miller's fighting, we got to tune in and watch, but he's still making 210 grand for that, which I, I guess goes to show when you fight in the UFC 35 times, you're going to continually raise your income, and he's in a pretty good spot right now, especially coming off of a win right there. So for Miller, it's a big win. There was a good portion of his career where he was dealing with Lyme disease, and that sort of derailed him. I'm not entirely sure that he's at a point in his career now where 
even if Lyme disease is taken care of for him, that he can still make a run at the title. He's still a very good fighter. Um, very, very good black belt. Um, pretty good striking overall. So he, he's going to be a guy who's dangerous for most of the guys he fights, but I don't really see him as like a future title contender again or a guy who's about to make a run. But either way, it was still a good win for him and against a guy in Roosevelt Roberts who was probably supposed to win that fight and build his name off of Jim Miller. It's nice to see Jim Miller get the win there and be able to continue on in his career. On the prelims, the prelim main event, so to speak, was Clay Guida versus Bobby Green. Um, it's kind of interesting how this fight started. Bobby Green seemed to be trying to mimic Michael Venom Page. It's kind of funny how he was doing some of the dancing, but with Guida, Guida was lunging in with his overhand rights, and you, you definitely don't want to keep your hands down when you're fighting a guy who's doing that, especially a guy who's going to mix up the takedowns as well. Uh, Guida had his moments where he's able to take Bobby Green down, but wasn't terribly effective from top once he got him down. Uh, Green was landing some pretty good strikes, was timing Guida pretty well as Guida was coming in. And so you, you figured Green had done enough to get the win here, and the judges did agree. It was a unanimous decision. One judge gave all three rounds to Bobby Green. The other two gave two out of three to Bobby Green, so he gets the win here. Uh, also had a post-fight interview that was pretty nice where apparently when Bobby Green was younger, his his father really wasn't a part of his life, and he ended up going to foster care. And the foster parent who picked him up was actually a, a white guy who was, who was in his corner. So it was kind of like a nice message of unity where he's like, look, it's not about the color of your skin. It's about the content, content of your character. This guy right here is basically my dad. Um, even though he's white, it's not about skin color. It's about love. It's about who you are as a person. So I thought that was a pretty nice message for Bobby Green to put out there. Uh, fight before that, we had Tisha Torres versus Brianna Van, Brianna Van Buren. Uh, Torres just put it on Van Buren, was doing an effective job of grappling with her, was also um, throwing a pretty wide array, of, wide array of strikes, was very effective with her kicks in this fight. Uh, so she gets a dominant, unanimous decision to win here. Uh, fight before that, we had Marc-Andre Barrio versus Oscar Pijota. Um, this is pretty much a, lo a loser leaves town match, and Pijota was a loser there. Had a couple moments where his right hand was working pretty well for him, but he was circling away, uh, circling up against the fence for a lot of this fight. Uh, wasn't necessarily engaging in a whole lot of grappling exchanges, which you figure that he would, given his advantage on the ground. Um, so grappling wasn't there for him. The striking was very limited. He had very few weapons that he was using here. And Barry was able to just overwhelm him and eventually get the TKO at the end of the second round. But before that was Jillian Robertson versus Courtney Casey. Uh, Robertson was pretty effective at taking Casey down. It was kind of surprising how easy some of the takedowns appeared to come. Um, just in that the shots were decent, but it seemed like Robertson was doing a good job of finishing quickly. But also there were some moments where she was finishing on some takedowns that looked like they were kind of dangerous where she was going for a single leg, but then kind of like on the wrong leg. I was still able to kind of drag Casey down and then square back up when she got to the ground. Uh, but towards the end of the third round, I uh, was able to take Courtney Casey down. Had Courtney Casey turtled and threw in... It's actually a choke that I like to use a lot, but she finished it differently. So the, the, the choke I use, it's kind of referred to as like a nogi clock choke or a bulldog choke. Uh, the setup, I guess, is why you call it a clock choke in that you're you're behind someone from turtle. You bring your forearm across and not the near arm. So let's just say that I have my opponent turtle and the turtle to my right side. I would bring my left arm across, bring it underneath their neck, and then hop over the back. Uh, but then from there, the finish would be more like a bulldog choke. For Jillian Robertson, she tried to finish. She, she decided to finish it like a rear naked choke, but didn't have her hooks in. And generally, the reason why I like to go to the bulldog rather than the rear naked is because if you don't have your hooks in, you don't really have control. It's generally going to mean that they ha your opponent has space to sort of turn their back to the mat. Uh, and then when they do that, you're going to lose control of the choke, and then they'll be able to get out. For whatever reason, Casey did not try to turn her back to the mat. She just kind of stayed there as if the hooks were in and pretty much kept herself in control there, which was kind of odd. Uh, it seemed like she was angry at her corner afterwards, so maybe they were giving her bad advice, or maybe uh, she wanted to do something differently. I'm not entirely sure what happened there, but it looked like 
the choke should have been escaped given that there were no hooks and that there was the opportunity for Casey to try to turn. Um, but either way, it was still a tight squeeze by Robertson. She did what she had to do to get the win there. And so Jillian Robertson gets the finish. Fight before that, we had a really quick one that lasted 41 seconds between Frank Camacho and Justin Janes. Uh, Camacho has been in some pretty exciting wars. He's also had some rough knockouts. The Jeff Neal one was really bad. Um, but this fight here with Justin Janes, he got caught with, I believe, a left hook. Uh, and then James just was putting it on after that um, very aggressively. Um, was just throwing everything he could, landed some more left hooks as well. And eventually Camacho uh, was up against the fence when he was punching back. He was punching really slowly and looked to be completely out of it. So the ref did a good job of stepping in and stopping that fight. Uh, so a big one for Justin James in his UFC debut. The second fight on the card was between Roxanne Mataferi and Lauren Murphy. Uh, Mataferi wasn't very successful in taking this fight to the ground and using her jiu-jitsu on the feet. Mataferi, I mean, her striking obviously still could use a lot of work. Uh, Murphy was able to outland her for the most part and was able to get the win here. Um, two judges gave it 30-27. One judge gave it to her by a score of 29-28. And then the first fight on the card, and this is going to be the one that I'm going to have to go into a little bit more, but it's between Austin Hubbard and Max Roshkoff. I, I think I'll, I'll talk more about Max specifically in the follow-up to this, but just recapping the fight, Roshkoff uh, came in as a very good grappler. Um, former NC State wrestler, was an ACC champion, never ended up All-American, all, never ended up being an All-American at the D1 level, but still winning the ACC title is pretty impressive, and for him to do that, he had to beat a guy by the name of David McFadden, and he beat him really badly in the ACC tournament as well. Also beat him during that regular season. McFadden was a three-time All-American headed in, heading into this year. Um, probably would have been an All-American this year as well, had they actually had the tournament and had, had it not been canceled due to COVID. So effectively, this David McFadden guy, who's a four-time All-American, uh, for whatever reason, he had no success with Mac against Max Roshkoff when they wrestled. So even though Roshkoff never became the All-American himself, he, he had some impressive wins over some guys who were at that level. Um, so th that's what his background was from a wrestling standpoint. From a jiu-jitsu standpoint, a after graduating in 2017, he got into jiu-jitsu, was training with Robert Drysdale at Zenith in Las Vegas and has had some pretty good success there uh, to the point where he actually had a match against Ethan Crellinston last year. Crellinston in 2017 won the ADCC trials, qualified for ADCC, and then lost in the, um, the round of eight to the eventual silver medalist, AJ Agazarm, um, ended up losing that match in overtime. Uh, so that's where Crellinston was at. Um, but Crellinston had a match against Max Roshkoff. Roshkoff at the time was a purple belt. I believe he's still a purple belt right now. And Roshkoff actually was able to catch him in a dart choke and choke him out to sleep. So, Roshkoff's a guy where he, he's got really good back, wrestling background, um, but has had a lot of success in jiu-jitsu so far for someone who hasn't been in jiu-jitsu all that long. Uh, has some submissions over some really good guys. Has had some good performances even in losses. Uh, he had a loss to Nate Orchard where he was able to pass Nate Orchard's guard before then. Uh, had a loss to Keith Krikorian who was in ADCC this year where he was able to pass Krikorian's guard multiple times. So he's shown some promise for someone who hasn't been in jiu-jitsu all that long. And... One of the things that interests me about Max Rajkoff, and I think this is something that I've, you also see a lot from Gary Tonin, but I think this is going to be a big evolution in MMA and possibly even in, within Jiu-Jitsu as well, is that we're used to seeing wrestlers in MMA where when they shoot in on a takedown, they're just looking for the takedown. And say if they shoot in on a single leg, like you, you stop the single leg, you know that what they're going to be looking for next is probably a double leg or they might try to make an adjustment off of there and run the pipe. Um, but oftentimes if they're shooting a single leg, you might kind of extend out that other leg to create some to create some distance so it's harder for them to wrap their arms around the second leg or to switch off to that double and that makes sense in a wrestling context 
But we're seeing now some of these jujitsu guys with they'll shoot for that single, you'll you'll widen up your base to prevent the double leg, and then they'll take advantage of you widening up your base and then shoot underneath for your leg and try to go for a leg attack. And that's something that I'd like to see some more of in both the jujitsu world and also in MMA. And we see that a lot with Gary Tonin, where he'll shoot a wrestling takedown and then kind of use your wrestling defense against you to, to set up a leg attack. Um, to an extent, we would see it in, with Damian Maya, where if you defended a single leg from him, he would just kind of like pop down to his butt, set up a single leg from half guard. So he popped down, he dropped down to half guard, uh, set up a sweep attempt from there to come back up and get the finish that way. Uh, so we have seen sort of like these jujitsu responses to wrestling defense. Uh, but Max Roshkoff's another guy who does a really good job of mixing up wrestling and jujitsu. Uh, even in this fight in the first round, um, for him attacking that heel hook, it was off of a, a takedown attempt that it was defended. So for him, he's got very good wrestling. He's very good at taking opponents to the ground, even though Hubbard beat him up pretty bad in this fight. Had some really good moments of of wrestling and able in him being able to get this fight to the ground. Uh, had some decent submission attempts as well, even though this fight didn't go his way. But just as a prospect, I'm very high on Max Roshkoff. I think he's one of those guys where the more time he gets, the more he can clean up his jiu-jitsu technique because he is still fairly new to jiu-jitsu, even though he is a purple belt. Um, but as he cleans up his jiu-jitsu, as his striking grows, and, and again, like I mentioned, this is a guy who graduated in 2017, so he hasn't been in MMA all that long. I feel like he's the type of guy where in a few years he can be a serious problem in the UFC uh, for a lot of guys, and he can be a guy who can potentially be a contender. Uh, for him, he was 5-0 and at this point. A lot of people were really high on him. His manager was really high on him. And his manager reached out to Sean Shelby multiple times, like, look, I got this guy, Max Roshkoff. Like, he's, he's a killer. He's 5-0 right now. This guy's going to be the future. And that was sort of what led to him getting this opportunity here as well when it came up on short notice. But unfortunately uh, for him, the striking just is not very far developed. He had his moments on the ground, but Hubbard was able to get back up after the, the failed heel hook attempt. Um, when Hubbard was taken down the first time, he was able to kick off the fence and use the fence to get back up to his feet. And so for Roshkoff, he didn't take advantage of his opportunities when he did have the fight on the ground. Um, but then when the fight was on the feet, it, it just looked like he was kind of looking to throw one or two shots at a time, generally one shot at a time, trying to draw Hubbard's hands up and then try to freeze him with a single strike. And then once he's frozen, then try to shoot underneath to get the takedown. But that was not working against Hubbard. And it caused some serious problems. So Hubbard gets the win here. Just absolutely ran over him in the second round. Uh, was just lighting him up after getting taken down initially after what was a, a fun attempt from Roshkoff where he went for an Imanari roll, uh, didn't get it, but then shot in on a double and was able to take him, take um, Austin Hubbard to the ground, which again is a, a fun thing about Roshkoff is that he really does mix up his jujitsu and his wrestling really well. And that's what I find really exciting about him. But the fight just did not go his way at all. But after the, the second round, he's in his corner and he's just telling Robert Drysdale, like, look, call it. Like, this is it. Call it. I'm done here. Uh, I, I can't do this anymore. Like, I, I'm done. This guy's got me. It, it's over. And as Roshkoff kept telling his coach he's done, it's over, call the fight, rather than being like, okay, like, I, I see where you're at. Like, if this is what if this is what you want, we're going to call the fight right here. Robert Drysdale decided that he would rather try to convince Roshkoff, no, you've got it. You can still beat this guy. Like, let's go out there. Let's let's finish off these five round, these um, five minutes. If you have to take him down, just hang on to him and just lose the decision two rounds to one, so be it. But just go out there and finish the fight. So what's tough about this is that I don't really know what type of relationship Drysdale and Roshkoff have or had up to this point. It is worth noting that Robert Drysdale's background is heavily based in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He did fight in the UFC for a brief moment and then tested positive for steroids and then was done with his career. Um, but his background is definitely in jiu-jitsu. He's a former ADCC champion. Uh, his striking was never something that he was known for in, in MMA, obviously. And much of the issues that Roshkoff was having in this fight were striking-related. 
Uh, now, the, he did have Dewey Cooper in the corner as well, and Cooper could have been providing a little bit more advice. Um, but from Robert Drysdale's standpoint, he saw, at least early on in the first round and even early on in the second round as well, that when Roshkov shot him was able to get his takedowns, he was able to get some to get to some pretty dominant positions, was able to threaten some submissions. So at least from a pure grappling standpoint, what he was seeing in that fight was that he saw his fighter had the advantage on the ground over the opponent. So I, I guess to him, he might have been looking at this like, look, there there is a path to victory for you here. There is a way for you at least to, to hang on and win a round, if nothing else. And to him, maybe that's something that he really wanted to push for. Um, Drysdale also, when he was coming up in the jiu-jitsu world, was a part of a pretty rough camp in Brazil. Uh, so for him, maybe it's just one of those things where with the people he's been around, the idea of quitting in the middle of a fight when you still have an opportunity to to make some ground and possibly find a way to take victory from the jaws of defeat. Uh, maybe that's just something that he's just not into at all. Uh, but either way, he he did not want to see Max Roshkoff stop here. It's unclear how hurt Roshkoff was, whether it was just one of those things where he's like, look, I feel like I'm a human punching bag right now. I just like, I can't get my offense off, and Hubbard's getting all his offense off, so I just don't want to take any more damage than I have to. Or whether he actually was like injured, whether it be like a broken orbital or something else that we just didn't know, and he didn't want to take any more damage to that. It's pretty unclear what the specific issue was there, but it did kind of look like it's one of those situations where Roshkoff wasn't like physically injured at that point. There was a decent chance that he would have been or would have been hurt pretty badly had the fight gone on. Um, but maybe that was one of those things where Drysdale was looking at and saying, you know, like, you're physically capable of continuing on here. Let's do it. Let's let, let's hang our head high on how this fight ends. And if we can find a way to get a finish and steal this fight on the ground, let's do that too. So it seems like that's where where Robert Drysdale was with this. Uh, but with that being said, if if your fighter just continually says, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, at some point you've got to be like, okay, that's it. And it seems like he kind of did turn did did get to that point. So it is worth noting that as bad as the video seemed to a lot of people watching that corner, um, watching that exchange in the corner, Max Roshkov entered his corner at the end of the second round and did not want to continue. The fight did not continue past the end of the second round. Once the the minute was up, uh, the inspector asked, hey, do you still want to continue? continue? Roshkov said no. Ref comes over, hey, you want to continue? Roshkov said no. Fight's off. So it's not as though Roshkov ended up actually having to take more damage. Um, in, in a third round, the fight did end when he wanted it to end, or when he verbalized that he wanted it to end. So to that end, could you say that it's a no harm, no foul thing? You know, maybe. Uh, you can hear Robert Drysdale at the end there when the ref's coming over asking if they want to continue. You can hear Drysdale saying, no, he doesn't want to. So I, I think when if they do investigate this, that... That needs to be part of it as well. Is that between the, conver- the the conversation between Drysdale and Roshkov is Drysdale telling Roshkov, "No, you're not. You can keep doing it. You can continue on." But when the ref actually comes over and they're actually asking, "Okay, well, we got to make a decision here. Is this going on or not?" At that point, Drysdale wasn't saying, "No, no, he's good. Let him go." He, he was saying, "No, he doesn't want to," and then that was that. So I don't know how how much trouble Robert Drysdale is going to find himself in after this. Um, I, I know a lot of fans are going to take issue with Robert Drysdale because of the fact that he was pushing Roshkoff to go on. It seemed like there was a decent mix between some fighters in terms of how they felt about it. Some felt, hey, look, Roshkoff wasn't actually injured at that point, so they were perfectly fine with Robert Drysdale trying to push him on. Others were saying, look, if the fighter is willing to verbalize that he doesn't want to fight anymore, you got to respect that and call an end of the fight. Uh, again, I feel like I have to keep bringing this up, but again, Roshkoff graduated in 2017. 
who's been in the sport for like three years, uh, has wrestled for a lot longer than that. His jujitsu has evolved pretty quickly, but there's still obviously room for him to grow within there. But the striking definitely needs to improve. Um, transitioning from wrestling to jujitsu, from grappling sport to grappling sport, is a lot easier than transitioning from wrestling to striking, grappling sport to striking sport. And though the jujitsu has been coming along pretty well for Rajkov at this point, the the, or the striking definitely needs some more work. And for him, is it worth him taking a, a ton of damage and possibly career-altering damage at this point in his career? Probably not. Um, so as far as where we go from here, it, it kind of sucks that the fight ended this way. Um, the fact that Rajkov literally said, like, I'm done, call it, whether he had to say that one time or ten times, what's tough about this, because like I mentioned, I'm high on Rajkov as a prospect, at least in terms of what where his skills are at from a wrestling standpoint and from a jiu-jitsu standpoint. I think he's definitely got enough time as a 25-year-old who's only been in the sport for three years to grow his striking to a point where he can definitely hang in the UFC or at least do enough striking to, to set up his wrestling and to eventually get these fights to the ground. I think he's a guy who in a few years can definitely be a legitimate contender in the UFC, but him having that background of there being that fight where he was pretty much calling it quits and saying he didn't want it anymore, it, it's going to end up haunting him a little bit, assuming that he continues on. But with that being said, does it make a difference between him coming into the corner saying call it and then Trisel calling it immediately or him saying call it ten times and then it eventually being called? I don't know that there's that big of a difference. I think just saying call it once is enough um, for people who want to give you shit to give you shit anyway. So I don't know that it's really going to hurt him that bad. I, I think the bigger concern for him is that I think at this point it's unlikely that he's going to be back in the UFC for his next fight, which, uh, again, is okay. He needs a few more years to develop. But the question beyond that then becomes once he finally is ready, how is the UFC going to feel about bringing him back? Are they going to feel like, hey, you had your chance, you just you weren't up to it, like we respect you for trying, but you, you just couldn't hang? Or are they going to be like, okay, well, you had a few years, we, we see that you're a very talented prospect, we see that you have a very good wrestling background, we see that your jiu-jitsu is continuing to improve. We see that your striking has made some major improvements that allow you to implement the, the grappling a lot more. And they'll let them go from there. I, I think that'll that'll take some time to be determined, and we'll, we'll really have to see where they go from there. But my hope is that for Rashkov that he takes some time to recover, um, gets back in there, and really continues to work on his improvement. Because I really do see him as a, a very good prospect and as a guy who can really push forward some major technical changes in MMA in terms of the the combination of wrestling and jiu-jitsu being, being intertwined where you're seeing jiu-jitsu in spots where typically you're expecting a wrestling response rather than um, just what we're used to where if someone shoots in on a takedown, they're, they're just fighting for the takedown. It's, it's, it's fun to see guys who shoot in on a takedown, you stop their takedown, but then they use your wrestling defense as a way to open up a jiu-jitsu opportunity. So we'll see where things go from here for him. I, I don't know that I'm that upset with Robert Drysdale because, again, it, it's sort of like one of those no harm, no foul things. And the fact that Drysdale, there, there's a difference between Drysdale's conversation with Roshkov and Drysdale's conversation with the commission. When he was talking to Roshkov, he's like, no, you can keep going. Like, we, there are ways that we can do this. Like, come on, we, we've got this. But then when the commission came over and they were asking him, then Drysdale's like, no, he's done. So it's not as though Drysdale was trying to tell the commission, no, no, he's good, send him out there. Uh, it, it was just when he was talking to Roshkov that he was saying, look, you can do this, go back out there. And I haven't heard a lot of people make that distinction, but I think it is an important distinction that's worth mentioning. All right, next topic is going to be the upcoming fight card next week. The headliner will be Dustin Poirier versus Dan Hooker. In terms of who I think is going to win this fight, it's a close fight. I don't think this fight's going to be going down to the feet or going down to the ground at any point. It seems like a fight that's mostly going to be on the feet. 
with Dan Hooker and really Dustin Poirier too. Both of these guys have very good guillotines. They're they're guys who are fairly dangerous to shoot on, especially in open space. Um, even Khabib Nurmagomedov, who's very good at defending uh, against chokes and other submission attempts, almost got caught in a pretty tight guillotine against Dustin Poirier. So I don't see Dan Hooker trying to pull a Khabib and shoot on Dustin Poirier and take him down and beat him up for the course of five rounds. This fight you would expect for Hooker would be taking place mostly on the feet. For Poirier, Hooker, uh, his, nickname, his nickname Hangman comes from his guillotine choke that he's been successful with early, earlier in his career. I don't see Poirier trying to take down Hooker that many times. He may try to throw in a couple takedowns here and there up against the fence. At least put together some decent attempts to make Hooker think about the possibility of it, but I don't think that that's going to be a major part of his game plan. So this fight's likely largely to take place on the feet. Hooker's the guy who keeps his hands down a lot. Throws from a lot of different angles. His kicks are very good. His knees are very good. And with that being said, though, Poirier is a guy who doesn't duck down a ton. Uh, he, he does a pretty good job with his posture, so I don't know if the knees and the kicks are going to be there as much um, for Hooker as they have been in past fights. As far as the boxing goes, Poirier should have a pretty big advantage over Hooker in the boxing. Um, the fact that Poirier is very quick and deceptively long with his strikes, especially that lead left hand that he does, he, he fights out of southpaw, but usually... When you have a southpaw, they're throwing the jab with the right hand first, and then throwing the left hand after as the cross. Poirier is very good about throwing that cross as his lead punch, um, making up a lot of ground then, landing with a lot of power. And for a guy like Dan Hooker, who keeps his hands down a lot, it seems fairly likely that that left hand is going to find home, find its home a lot. Uh, so do I see Dustin Poirier finishing Hooker? It's definitely a possibility, but I think the advantage that Poirier has in the boxing is definitely going to make, the, make up the difference in this fight. And so while Hooker is obviously a very dangerous striker, uh, he's coming off a lot of really good wins. Um, he even has that knockout over Gilbert Burns, who's not going to be fighting for a, a title a weight class up. I, I just think Poirier is going to do a good enough job not to drop his posture enough where those knees are going to become as big of a weapon as they could be. Uh, and then for as long as this fight is within boxing range and for as long as this fight is determined by the hands, I, I definitely see Poirier having the edge there. In the coming event, we have Mike Perry versus Mickey Gall. Mickey Gall, the surprise is still in the UFC. I guess he has... Enough of a, enough of a following after his win over CM Punk, has had a couple wins over some very low ranked guys in the division, so he's still around. But he's he's one of these guys. I think at this point he's probably a jiu-jitsu black belt, but at welterweight it's not as though black belts are super rare, especially in the UFC. There are plenty of other black belts in the UFC, um, but a lot of those guys also have pretty good wrestling. You can take the fight to the mat and take advantage of that jiu-jitsu um, skill that they have. Uh, they've also developed their striking a lot further along than Gall has. So with Gall, you have a guy who's not terribly effective at taking fights to the ground, um, who doesn't have very good striking. And though his jiu-jitsu is very good, it's not as though it's like devastating compared to what, what you also see from other guys in the division. Uh, going against Mike Perry, who's not exactly the easiest guy to take down. A lot of guys who fight him want to take him down and aren't able to. Uh, Perry's a decent purple belt. Uh, Gall should definitely have the advantage on the ground, but I don't know within MMA context how well Gall would do on the ground. From top, I think he should be fi- he should be fine, but from bottom, I can see Perry picking his shots and being able to win the rounds from top, even though he's not going to like pass Mickey Gall's guard necessarily. He'd still be able to land enough punches to win a round in a May context. But on the feet, uh, Perry's a, a better technical striker than Gall is, but also has a lot more power than Gall. And I'd figure that with this fight starting on the feet, that Perry's just going to pick Gall apart. Gall's going to take some panic shots, but I'm going to get tired pretty quickly, and Perry's going to be able to get a finish there. So I would definitely put money down on Mike Perry. Uh, next fight on the card is Kyle Dawkins versus Brendan Allen. It was supposed to be Ian Heinish versus Brendan Allen. Heinish got injured. So Allen is fighting a replacement in the 9-0 Kyle Dawkins, who I believe is making his UFC debut. I uh, don't know a whole lot about Dawkins, so it's hard for me to break down the fight. 
Uh, we've got John Vellante versus Maurice Green. I believe this fight will be at heavyweight. Uh, neither of these guys have terribly impressive records. I believe both of them are trying to work their way towards the top 15 at heavyweight. I don't know that it wouldn't put either of them in the top 15, but it'll still be a decent heavyweight fight to watch. Um, right now it says Aspen Ladd versus Sarah McMahon. Aspen Ladd, I believe, tore her ACL and MCL, so she's out of this fight. I don't know if that means she's going to be out for nine months or what the recovery period is going to be for her there. I don't know if they have a replacement for Sarah McMahon either, but that's what ESPN has right now. Um, on the prelims, you have Kama Worthy versus Luis Pena. Worthy had that really surprising knockout win last year. But he was like a his, his opponent was a ten to one favorite. I think he was like a plus six fifty underdog, uh, but he's able to get the win there. So I think this might be his first fight back since then. Uh, we've got Felipe Linz versus Tanner Boser. Linz was a former PFL champion. I believe he lost to Andre Olaski in his last fight, uh, so he's returning against Tanner Boser, pretty solid Canadian heavyweight. We've got Mar Romero Barella versus Miranda Maverick. Miranda Maverick is nine and two. Had a decent run in Invicta. So she's making her UFC debut in this fight. Um, as far as I know about her, she's got a pretty good jiu-jitsu background. I believe she's a purple belt, but has been pretty active on the competitive jiu-jitsu scene. Uh, at a tournament last year where there was like a men's division and a women's division for the Invitational. I was in the men's division, but she was also in the women's division. She did pretty well there. Got to the finals um, until she lost a, a girl by the name of Hannah Sharp, which I believe she was a brown belt world champion in Nogi. So that's not a bad person to lose to. Um, fight before that is Sean Woodson versus Kyle Nelson. Um, don't know a whole lot about either of them, so it's tough for me to break that fight down. Uh, we've got Takashi Sato versus Ramiz uh, Brahimaj. Again, don't know much about either of them. And then Jordan Griffin versus Yusuf Zalal. Griffin had a pretty good fight in his last fight. Uh, was able to get a guillotine where he was ended up in bottom side control but had the high elbow grip and was able to get the finish from there. Uh, and then Zalal, don't know a whole ton about him. Uh, but Griffin, I believe, fights out of Rufus Sports, so he's a pretty exciting fighter. Um, decent submissions off of his back, but also pretty good striking as well. So that covers it for the upcoming fight night, uh, UFC Fight Night Poirier versus Hooker, which is also going to be known as UFC Vegas 4 or UFC Apex 4. Uh, so that'll be fun to watch after that fight card. There won't be another fight the week after. So next week I'll be recapping this card and then also just covering some more general stories. But then coming up after that, they'll have the, the Fight Island Three weeks, three weeks of Fight Island, I guess, where they got the UFC 251 card, followed up by three more fights in, I'm trying to think, I think over the course of 14 days. Okay, next topic to talk about is what I would say is some pretty stupid decision making, but I don't know if this is on the UFC, I think this is more on the commission. But we had a situation where Matt Favola was supposed to fight on this last card, and a cornerman of Matt Favola tested positive for COVID 19, and as a result, Favola was pulled off of the card. So, I understand that right now, for a lot of the people in positions of power, particularly if it's something that's politically appointed, whether it's just as a political appointment or whether it's something that they're voted into, you don't want to be the guy who is like, fuck it, this is, this is the Wild West, let's do whatever the hell we want here and have to worry about what happens if something bad goes wrong. So, in a lot of cases, people are just trying to be overly careful and just put forth a bunch of arbitrary rules that make it look like they're trying to make things safe. And I feel like here with the Vegas commission putting forth an arbitrary rule that says, look, if a cornerman tests positive, we got to pull the actual fighter. It, it, it just seems ridiculous to me, especially since you are actually testing everyone. Like if the cornerman tests positive, but say that for immune systems in a really good spot and he was able to fight off whatever he had and he doesn't have it and he's not able to, to pass it along. Why should Favola himself be pulled off? So if you can test Matt Favola and you, you can prove that he's negative, why should he be taken off rather than just taking the cornerman away and sending the cornerman back? And even with Ian Heinish's last fight, that was kind of what happened where 
one of Heinrich's corner tested positive. They sent the cornerman home, but Heinrich was still able to fight. So for whatever reason, Frivola is unable to fight because his cornerman had COVID-19. But beyond that, if you look at the effects that COVID-19 has on people in this age range, it's just not it's, it's not that dangerous for for active guys who are in shape who are in that 25 to 34 range. I mean, if you're under 24, you're actually in a greater risk of losing your life to pneumonia and flu than you are to COVID-19. It's slightly skews towards COVID-19 once you, once you break 25 years old. But again, it's, not, it's hardly hardly worse at that point. And so you have something that's slightly more dangerous than the flu that your cornerman got at this age and you can't fight. Like, it just seems crazy to me to think about imagining like a year ago that if a fighter's cornerman had the flu, that the fighterman would be pulled off the card. Like, how much mockery that would that story would have like people would be like what the hell is going on here like who made that decision this is ridiculous but for whatever reason with COVID-19 we have like 42 percent of people who who are dying are dying in nursing homes um generally if you're in a nursing home that kind of tells you about where you're at with your health and also with your age um on top of that a lot of the deaths that have been counted for COVID-19 are cases where it's with not of so you have people who have other comorbidity comorbidities that are at play here that are a much bigger reason for their death than just COVID-19 that are being counted as COVID deaths, so it makes people think that COVID is a lot more deadly than it is. But when you think about what we actually know about COVID-19 right now, for people in this age range, to think that a fighter would have to be pulled out of a fight because his cornerman got it, it, it seems crazy. I mean, I think at some point in the near future, we may get to the point where the idea of a fighter himself being pulled out because he has COVID-19 is going to be crazy. Once we get to a point in the future where they're actually serious about this kind of stuff where if someone has a staph infection they get pulled out of a fight if someone has the flu they get pulled out of a fight the idea of pulling someone out for COVID-19 compared to those two really it 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 just seems like the main difference between the two is that COVID-19 had a, a huge media push behind it in terms of how bad it was and a lot of fear was generated about that specific disease but for people of this age I, I'm telling you right now like if I get if I had a fight with someone and they were like okay well the fighter has a disease um it's either COVID-19 it's either the flu or it's either staph and they're like which one do you hope it is I would much rather he have COVID-19 than he have staph that's for sure uh then compared to the flu I guess COVID-19 is probably a little bit worse than the flu although a lot of these COVID-19 cases are asymptomatic so I guess there's a chance that if you catch asymptomatic like if you have like an asymptomatic um contraction of COVID-19 and that's probably going to be the best of the three options for you but just the idea of someone getting pulled off of a fight card because his cornerman had it just seems so ridiculous to me especially as more information comes out about this disease but when you're the UFC you're working with the government if the government's going to make put these rules in place you kind of have to play along so that's where we're at and it's, it sucks for Favola but hopefully he's able to get back on a card in a few weeks and able to actually go out there and compete uh, next thing to talk about is going to be some fight announcements so this one I mentioned before but I'll mention it again Derek Lewis is going to be returning at heavyweight against Alexi Olenek. This fight will be taking place in August. Uh, so for Lewis, it seems like he's fought most of the top guys in the division. So I guess Olenek's one of those guys where he hasn't had a shot at him yet, so you might as well put that fight together. Olenek's coming off of a win over Verdum. So I guess for Olenek, really good opportunity here. If you get a w- wins over Verdum and Lewis, you can find yourself fighting some top guys pretty soon, um, or at least some top five guys possibly even pretty soon. Not that I see Olenek as a guy who can hang with the top five guys, but you get a win over a former champ, and then you get a win over a guy in Derek Lewis who's a former t- title challenger. Um, that's got to mean something. Another fight that's interesting at light heavyweight is going to be Anthony Smith versus Alexander Rakic. Rakic, I believe, just... It, I know he's coming off of a loss. I believe it was to Ozemir. I don't remember exactly who it was to. 
Um, but he was a guy who was considered an up-and-coming prospect at light heavyweight, very dangerous guy, um, very strong, very very well-muscled, um, very dangerous striker, uh, has excellent kicks. But he's going to be returning against Anthony Smith. Smith is returning after that fight against Gilbert Teixeira where he kind of had that moment with his corner where he wasn't explicitly saying that he wanted out of there, but it seemed as though there were some implicit messages being sent there. Uh, though he denied it afterwards, it kind of felt like his body language was saying he didn't want to be there anymore after the third round, uh, but he continued on, took a beating, and eventually was finished off. Seems kind of surprising that he'll be returning so soon in August against Rakic. Rakic is definitely a dangerous guy. He can hit pretty hard. Uh, doesn't seem like the kind of guy who's going to be dangerous over the course of five rounds. Uh, I think this is going to be a three-round fight anyway, but doesn't seem like a guy who's dangerous over the, oh, during the later rounds, but in the early, early rounds, he'll definitely be dangerous. So this fight could be fireworks in the first round or two, but then third round might be a little bit a little bit rough if both of them make it to that point. Uh, next fight to talk about is an interesting fight at women's flyweight uh, between Nico Montano, f- former champion who almost never fights. So I guess mention this fight might not even be worth my time right now because it seems like there's a decent chance that Nico's going to pull out at some point, uh, whether she misses weight or whether something else pops up. But for the time being, she's scheduled to fight um, Julia Raging Panda Avila. Um, Avila looked really good in her last fight, uh, very quick win over, I believe it was Gina Mazzani. Uh, she hadn't fought for a year prior to that, but there was a lot of hype behind her leading up to her getting in the UFC. Um, so looked really good in her last fight. This will be a really good opportunity for her if Montano actually shows up to get a win over a former champion and really start to build her way up in the division. She's, a, she's someone who I've been asked about uh, in terms of how good I think she's going to be. I haven't seen enough of her to really build a strong opinion on it. But if we do get this fight, especially if Montano is able to stick in there for a little bit or for a little while, especially longer than Avila's last opponent, I'll probably be able to get a better read on where Avila's at, Avila's at technically and kind of get an idea of where she can where she can go in the division from there. So it's a fight I'm interested in seeing, assuming that it actually happens. Uh, another fight worth mentioning is Chris Weidman returning to middleweight against Omari Akhmedov. Um, Weidman's kind of in this spot right now where it, it's not just who he fights, but how he fights that really interests me because the Weidman that was a champion was a guy who was actually willing to, to stand for a while, um, was able to land some pretty good shots, was, was a decent kickboxer, definitely a decent boxer and was able to use that boxing to open up his wrestling. Uh, we saw in that first fight with Anderson Silva that he didn't even have to take... Well, I guess he did have Anderson down at one point. Um, but he didn't have to fin- use the takedown to finish Anderson Silva. He was able to offer enough of a throw on the feet uh, to eventually knock him out. Uh, had Anderson rocked in the second fight between the two of them before eventually Anderson's leg hit got checked, and then that ended up, that ended up ending that fight. Um, had a tough fight with Machida where he was on the feet for most of the time. Um, so early on in Chris Weidman's career, at least when he was successful... He wasn't afraid to strike with guys. Like he was willing to, to stand for a little bit of time, uh, find his shots, maybe even knock some opponents down. Uh, but then, w- with the threats that he would offer on the feet, that would open up the wrestling a lot more. But it seems like in his recent fights, he's just been going out there, just chasing guys down, running, just running straight at him and trying to shoot on him, take him down, and like put all of the, his energy into that. And that's just not an effective game plan in MMA. We, we've seen other fighters who have wrestling backgrounds who don't feel comfortable striking, and. As that becomes more and more apparent, their success just dwindles more and more. Rashad Evans was a great example of it, where he kind of got to a point where he didn't feel comfortable throwing more than like one or two punches at a time, and so later on, later on in his career, everyone he'd fight would know what he'd be doing. They'd find ways to stuff him, and even though Rashad is a very good wrestler, from a wrestler from Michigan State, um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt as well, he, even though his grappling was great, his striking was just nowhere near where it had to be in the cage to set up those takedowns, and as a result, he had no success. With Chris Wyman recently, it seems like there's sort of a similar thing going on where he doesn't really want to strike with guys too much. And as a result, it's harder for him to set the takedowns up. He's more reliant on them. Uh, it's more physically and mentally exhausting when he doesn't get them. 
and that's caused problems for him. So if he comes out here against Akhmadov, and let's just say he rushes across at him, takes him down, and actually is able to get the takedown and gets an early finish, that's not going to really prove to me that Chris Weidman's back where he needs to be from a men- from a mental standpoint to, to really make another run at middleweight or even at light heavyweight if he wants to move back up there. To me, what's going to tell me a lot about Chris Weidman is going to be how willing is he to actually stand and trade with his opponents, um, whether it's to try to get a finish on the feet or whether it's just to get them occupied so he can set up um, takedowns that are going to land a lot more effectively for him. If we get to see that in the Akhmedov fight, then I'll have more reason to believe that Chris Weidman's got a chance of coming back. But if we just see him rush across the octagon uh, try to force a takedown, whether he's successful or not, th- that's still going to leave me concerned about where Chris Weidman's game is at right now, really where he can go from here. Uh, next topic to talk about, or I guess not next topic, we have one more fight uh, before I move, move topics, and that's going to be a main event on fight on between Calvin Cater and Dan Ige. Ige is coming off of a questionable win against Edson Barboza, but it was still a very tough fight. Uh, still hung tough with a, a guy who's really dangerous in Barboza, so got to give him credit for that. Uh, and then Calvin Cater, who looked really good in his last fight, uh, was able to get the knockout against Jeremy Stevens. Uh, he's a guy who went very high on a featherweight, as you've probably heard in past episodes. Uh, but I think that in this fight, it's largely going to be taking place on the feet. I don't know that Ige is going to be effective in getting Cater to the ground. And with that being said, Cater's boxing should definitely be a lot better than Dan Ige's. Ige's explosive. Um, he likes to throw lunging punches and likes to likes to head on out there, but I, I just see Cater picking him apart over time, and then as the fight goes on, he'll start finding some bigger shots and eventually drop him, and if not, finish him. So I, I see Kevin Cater getting the win there. But that'll be on July 15th, I believe. Alright, next topic is going to be some some match announcements for wrestling. So like I mentioned, in the preview, wrestling has been gone for a while. Um, they had expected to have the NCAA championships. They had expected to have the Olympic trials. Uh, and then obviously the Olympics this year. So it was supposed to be a really big year for wrestling. Pretty much all of that uh, just got shut down by COVID-19. So we are seeing some matches get put together now. Um, not exactly matches that we would have seen at the NCAA tournament. Um, one of them we definitely would have seen at the We definitely would have expected to see at the Olympic trials. Uh, but I'll go through what we have right now. So for June 28th, which is going to be this coming Saturday, on Fight TV for 20 bucks. It's, I think it's called Rumble on the Rooftop. It's going to be a wrestling tournament in Chicago. Um, but three of the matches that they're going to have there are going to be Jordan Oliver versus Jason Nolf. Um, not sure if these guys are normally in the same weight class. I think Nolf's generally up a weight class from Oliver. Uh, both these guys were incredibly successful in in the NCAA. Um, both of them are multiple-time NCAA D1 national champions. Uh, so they'll be having a match with each other. Oliver's done more on the international scene than Jason Nolf has. Nolf is sort of in an interesting spot in that I don't think he's going to break into the Team USA lineup just because of who's ahead of him. Um, he's one of those guys who I feel like if he gets into jiu-jitsu sort of like Roshkoff, that he could probably be very successful really quickly. A lot of what he does in wrestling sort of mirrors uh, some jiu-jitsu movements. So personally speaking, I would like to see Nolf make a transition into competitive jiu-jitsu or even into competitive MMA. Uh, but with that being said, his, his goals are still set on wrestling right now, so we're going to get to see him here against one of the top guys in the country, Jordan Oliver, and if he gets a win there, then maybe he tries to build on that momentum and make another run towards 2021. But it'll be interesting to see if Jason Nolte does not make the team in 2021, uh, whether he wants to just get into a career field, whether he wants to continue to be a professional athlete, and at which point does he stick with wrestling? Does he go to jiu-jitsu? Does he try to go to MMA? Uh, whatever decision he makes, I'm, I'm sure it'll be interesting either way. Another match on that card is going to be Luke Pletcher versus Pat Lugo. Uh, this is a really interesting match in that you have the number one guys from two different weight classes in the NCAA this year. You have the number one guy at 141, uh, which is Luke Pletcher, and the number one guy at 149 uh, from Iowa, Pat Lugo. 
uh, played for some Ohio State. So in terms of how these guys wrestle, Lugo is a lot more defensive than Pletcher. Pletcher is a, a more aggressive wrestler. Uh, Lugo, very tough to score on, uh, really good counter offense, though. So if you shoot on him, he's very good at stuffing your shot and then hitting a counter shot on you. So it'll be interesting to see how this match goes. Uh, whether well, it's going to be a typical low-scoring Lugo match where he's able to pick a spot and win like by a score of one takedown to zero, uh, or whether Pletcher's going to be able to, to get a finish on Lugo and put Lugo behind and force Lugo to have to chase him down and try to score on him to tie it up or to get the win. And then the other match to watch is going to be Pat Downey versus Joe Rao. Uh, so we have Pletcher and Downey on this card. Um, and then for July 25th, there's going to be a card that Flow Wrestling puts on that both Pletcher and Downey are going to be on. The main event of that card is going to be Kyle Dake versus Frank Chimizo. Chimizo, multiple-time world champion. Kyle Dake has won a couple world championships, though not Olympic weights. Dake was hoping to make the Olympic team this year by beating Jordan Burroughs, uh, who he has one win over in the past. It'd be interesting to see where, they, where they'd be at right now. I think a lot of people would expect Dake to get that win right now, or at least get that win in 2020. We'll see where they go in 2021. But Chimizo is a guy who's been really tight with Burroughs. Um, so if Dake can get a win and get a dominant win over Chimizo, that would definitely send a message moving forward. Coming event is going to be a really good one so pat downey is a name that you've probably heard of a lot um just because he's he's done a good job putting his name out there he's been really active in the jiu-jitsu scene uh had a match with gordon ryan um had a match with nick rodriguez as well or had a couple matches with nick rodriguez as well um but he never ended up winning an ncaa title but was always towards the top he had some personal issues that kind of give him some trouble too like he had transferred to iowa at one point um but was never able to earn eligibility when, while he was there so he didn't get to wrestle that year but he was he was never expected to make the team for Team USA, uh, especially since he, since he was at David Taylor's weight. Uh, but David Taylor ended up getting injured at the Beat the Streets event that you had the Jordan Burroughs versus Ben Askren match on. And as a result, it created an opening at that weight for the 2019 World Team, and Pat Downey ended up filling in that spot and beating some really good guys, including Miles Martin, to take that spot. Ended up having a decent World Championship tournament, too. Got a couple wins there. I think he finished fifth or definitely finished in the top ten there. Um, so really good year for him there. And with him having a very um, interesting personality, um, it, it's been interesting to see how you have the former world champion and David Taylor just kind of sitting back um, watching this sort of crazy guy take a spot and talk a lot of crap in the meantime. And we just haven't seen the match between these two since David Taylor went down with an injury. We were supposed to see that at the Olympic trials, um, but we're going to get to see it now, and it's going to be happening on July 25th. So... This is a match that's long been waited for. Uh, after Pat Downey earned his spot to face David Taylor, um, Taylor afterwards ended up getting injured. And so this was a match that had been promoted pretty well up until that point. It, it didn't end up happening, but we're finally going to get it, and I think a lot of people are going to be excited to see it. And the last match worth mentioning is going to be a match between the guy who was number one at 141 this year, who is Luke Pletcher of Ohio State, and the guy who won the NCAA championships in 2019, for Rutgers at Anthony Ashnault at 141 pounds. Uh, so Ashnault's still active in, in wrestling, hasn't really shown that he's likely to make the world team for the U.S., uh, but he's still a really good guy, really dangerous guy. And then for Luke Pletcher, uh, had a really good year this year in college, was never able to compete in the NCAA tournament and have a chance to prove himself as the number one guy. He did have Nick Lee of Penn State, who was giving him some problems. He was able to beat Nick Lee in the Big Ten Championships after losing to him in the regular season. Um, so it's not as though he was like well ahead of the field at 141, but he was the number one guy heading into the tournament. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see the number one guy, or the number one seed in 2020 going up, going up against the guy who won it all in 2019. So that'll be another fun match. Uh, last thing to talk about is going to be Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So there was the Third Coast Grappling Kumite this, over the course of this weekend. Uh, really strong tournament. 
um, with eight really good uh, black belt competitors in it. In the first round, they had Gustavo Batista, who won uh, the last third coast grappling kumite, though it was at a lower weight, uh, going up against Tanner Rice, who's a much bigger guy than him. And Batista was able to dominate this match against Tanner Rice, um, very effective with his guard passing, and ended up winning by a score of 11-2. to uh, next match in the first round was between Felipe Andrew and Jake Watson. Uh, Felipe Andrew uh, ends up going overtime here, and then in overtime is able to pass Watson's guard and win in overtime. I guess they call it golden score when you um, are the first one to score in overtime. Um, another match in the first round was Victor Hugo versus Ricardo Evangelista. Hugo's looked very good, won the Black Belt World Championships in Nogi in 2019. Uh, had set a pretty good year, even beat Nicholas Marigali at an event called Who's Number One for full grappling. Uh, so he's had a lot of momentum behind him. Um, but here in this match with Evangelista, a pretty close match, but he, he was active enough to get the win by referee decision over Ricardo Evangelista. And then the last one in the first round was Junatis Gracie versus Pedro Mourinho. Uh, Gracie coming back right away after beating Edwin Najmi the day before at Fight to Win. Um, but he ends up winning in overtime by golden score against Pedro Mourinho coming up on a sweep from 50-50. In the semifinals, it was Gustavo Batista versus Felipe Andrew. Uh, Andrew's definitely the bigger guy than Batista here, and he was able to do enough to get the win here eventually. Um, so he wins by referee decision. Uh, the other semifinals, Victor Hugo versus Junatis Gracie. Hugo's a bigger guy than Junatis, um, and Hugo's able to definitely use his size to his advantage here. Eventually, he ends up getting the win by Ezekiel Choke. And so in the finals, you have Felipe Andrew versus Victor Hugo, and Victor Hugo is able to get the win there by footlock. Uh, Felipe Andrew, really good black belt out of Zenith, Team Zenith, which is Robert Drysdale's team. Um, so I guess spent a lot of time talking about Robert Drysdale at the start um, with Max Roshkoff. I guess we'll, we'll finish talking about one of Robert Drysdale's students getting to the finals of a really good tournament here in third coast grappling um, before eventually losing to Victor Hugo. So that covers it for this week. Like I mentioned before, next week is mostly going to be talking about the Poirier versus Hooker card, recapping that. Uh, I'm sure there'll be some news that comes up over the course of that week. Uh, I'm not sure if there are going to be any developments on the Max Roshkoff, Robert Drysdale situation. But if there are, I'm definitely going to have to talk about those and bring those back up. Um, so we'll, we'll be recapping the Hooker versus Poirier card. Um, not sure that I'll do a preview of UFC, of UFC 251. I'll probably save that for the week after. But I'm sure some other stuff will come up, and it'll be worth talking about that as well. So hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. Again, if you haven't had a chance to watch the breakdown of Jim Miller versus Roosevelt Roberts, I'd recommend you do that. It's about 10 minutes just showing the the armbar and then recapping step-by-step step how Jim Miller was able to do that, um, both in terms of what Jim Miller did right, then also what Roosevelt Roberts uh, may have messed up on that led to the, the armbar finish.